My name is Elizabeth Yin, General Partner at Hustle Fund. I'm redefining venture capital by democratizing wealth through startups. Welcome to The First Close, Carta's podcast about the people who are building next-generation venture capital firms. We interview new voices in venture about their ambitions and challenges as they aim to redefine the industry. At Carta, we help VCs build enduring venture franchises, starting with Fund One. To learn more about how Carta expands access to equity and transforms capital markets, visit us at carta.com. That's C-A-R-T-A dot com. I'm Jessica Strauss, host of The First Close. Today, we are bringing you the final episode of season two of our podcast. So I want to start today's show by saying thank you. Thank you for tuning in since we launched in January, where we have interviewed some of the most unique new venture investors across the U.S. and the globe, and a handful of LPs investing in venture funds. For our final episode of this season, I'm excited to introduce you to our guest, Elizabeth Yin. Elizabeth is co-founder and general partner of Hustle Fund, a pre-seed fund she co-founded in 2017 with the mission of democratizing venture capital. If you've been following VC Twitter, you can see how she lives out this mission with her Twitter threads. Elizabeth shares hard-won knowledge on the critical topics related to venture investing, including how capital calls work, how to pick your lawyer, how to write cold emails, and the always important, how to identify product market fit. Her path to Hustle Fund started at Google. Eventually, she decided to start her own company, and she tried a lot of different ideas until ultimately, Elizabeth founded LaunchBit, an advertising platform that she sold in 2014. From there, Elizabeth started angel investing, then became a partner at 500 Startups, and then founded her firm, Hustle Fund. As always, we'll start with our guest slash line, the key stats that make up their unique track records. Let's go into Elizabeth's slash line. First, she's built too many startups to count. She's been in the investment world for six years. She launched Hustle Fund three years ago. She has made 286 investments. She has had 22 exits through Hustle Fund and one personal exit of her company, LaunchBit. She serves on zero boards. She has nearly 55,000 followers on Twitter, and her investments include companies such as The Pill Club, Mercury, Blavity, Missouri, Pipe, House, Circle, A Kid's Company, and many others. Elizabeth, thank you for being on The First Close today. You are closing out our second season of the podcast Many folks may know you from your Twitter threads. That's certainly how I was introduced to you. But I'd love to go back into your journey as an operator, an entrepreneur, and an investor and help us understand how did you get here to being general partner of Hustle Fund? Where did you start and how did you decide building a venture fund was the right next step? Well, thanks for having me, Jessica. We'll come back to this theme a lot, but I think there was a lot of serendipity and luck for me, largely based on actually where I grew up. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and in high school, my best friend actually was Tony Shea's cousin, Jennifer. And it was because of that luck, I got introduced to startups really early on in the late 1990s when I was still in high school, actually December 1996. 
my friend Jennifer and I went up to San Francisco and helped Tony. Actually, I use the word help very loosely. We were not helpful at all. But we, <laughs> we got to spend time with Tony at his first startup, Link Exchange, which he later sold to Microsoft for a reported couple hundred million dollars. So I didn't know anything about startups. I didn't come from a family that was in tech or knew anything about tech or was in startups in any way. But just time, place, and who I ran into actually was what set me on my path. Years later, I would go into big tech just because of actually that influence and where I lived. Fast forward many years later, I ended up working at Google and I left Google in late 2008 during the recession, which many of you may remember. It wasn't great timing to do so, but I wanted to try my hand at building a startup and being in an environment where I could kind of create my own destiny. And so that was where I really took my first startup leap. And I had a lot of flounderings, a lot of side projects. You had actually asked me how many companies I've built. And I really can't answer that because I've had so many startup projects that have failed, especially during that time. I ended up turning things around. And actually, Jennifer from high school became my co-founder in that company. And we ended up building out essentially an email advertising network called Launchbit. We sold that company in 2014 six years later, to uh, another advertising business on the East Coast called Buy, Sell, Ads. That's actually how I started my foray into mentoring and investing in other startups after that exit happened. I became a small angel investor and still am fairly active today in things that we don't do at Hustle Fund. But also, I started mentoring companies at 500 Startups, which was the accelerator program that we went through with Launchbit. And it was through that I was actually looking to understand what was happening in the world to figure out what I would build next when I kind of figured out, oh, the problem that I'm really passionate about solving for the next 30 years is this problem of capital, but also networks and knowledge. I saw so many great companies go through 500 startups, and many of them were overlooked in the beginning for a whole variety of reasons. But it could pretty much be summarized into one thing, which is people didn't check the boxes. And what I mean by that is if you didn't quite have the right resume, whether it's demographics or geography or whatever it was, it was really hard to get funding, even if you were a great company. I can think of a bunch of those companies actually who went on later, couldn't raise any money in the beginning, but actually now at this point, they're like at the Series B level or beyond and have done phenomenally well and, frankly speaking, have more equity because they couldn't raise more money, but they were overlooked for so long. And so this leads me to Hustle Fund. I left 500 startups in late 2017, really actually with a strong mission in hand that I wanted to go after, which is, gosh, we have this problem in startup ecosystems everywhere, whether it's Silicon Valley or elsewhere, where capital, knowledge, and networks are not well distributed, but there are great founders literally everywhere in the world. So how do you better distribute all of this? And that's what we're trying to work on at Hustle Fund. So I think many people see us as a VC fund. And yes, we do have a VC fund at Hustle Fund, but we also are trying to do much more than that, namely around these three things. That's an incredible background to have, especially I love the many, many times that you failed And that you have so many startup ideas that you tested, all of which I'm sure the lessons of which are helpful to you in some way today. I'd love to hear just a little bit more about all the ideas that you tried, because I think that's something that resonates with a lot of our listeners as they're trying different things, 
What do you take from that period of experimentation before you actually founded LaunchBit? And it sounds like even after mentoring startups, you were seeing a lot of different ways to try new ideas. I think the TLDR is that customer acquisition in software companies is just really hard. And we'll come back to that in some detail. But, you know, all of my flounderings were because I just couldn't get the unit economics to work. For example, some of the ideas that we worked on, I had essentially a search engine for wedding apparel in the very, very beginning. And it was an affiliate model. And the amount of money we made on a sold dress just was nothing compared to our customer acquisition costs, which were through the roof in comparison. And this is a common problem for any and all startups. Like I've done a lot in affiliate marketing even beyond that, whether it's selling nutrient supplements or other apparel or other things. And for any and all of those, it doesn't matter what you're selling. Business is simple in concept. You have to make more money than you are spending, right? (laughs) That part is easy. Everyone understands that. But when you actually go and do it, it's really hard. And why is it hard? And this actually ties in with this concept of product market fit that people throw around very loosely in the industry. But it's hard because if you don't have uptake from your customers, then it's really hard to find those people and make the unit economics work, getting your marketing spend under what the worth of the customer is. And if that isn't there, I think my biggest takeaway is you don't really have a business or you don't have a fast growth business. Like you cannot just pour money into marketing. You have to kind of wait organically for customers to come to you for free. And that hampers growth. My learning is on the investor side, I think a lot of investors think, oh, you know, founders are the most important thing. And I'll go to the mat on this one. I actually don't think founders are the most important thing. Certainly, great founders are really important. You need an awesome team to be spearheading the ship, but you also need to be running a business that your customers actually want to pay for your products. And that's hard to find because there are so many people out there these days selling things. Competition drives up customer acquisition costs. So there just isn't a lot of greenfield to run in general. So tying this later into my learnings on both the investor side and in building out LaunchBit, it really is important in the beginning to test out like what is the uptake or the customer pull is what I would call it, the market pull on this. If you don't have it, you have a hard decision to make. If you're super passionate about the idea and all you want to do is that idea, then maybe you go through with it anyway, but just go in with eyes wide open, knowing growth will be slow or nearly non-existent, but maybe it's worthwhile if you like the mission. But on the other hand, if you're looking for a venture backable business, you have to be finding things that have that high market pull. And that's often a philosophical dilemma, but I think it's important for people to recognize. That's really, really practical advice. And I think focusing on unit economics and really understanding the business also ties into your point of view in starting Hustle Fund, which is premised upon how can we make this more of a meritocracy? The startup ecosystem to date has not been a meritocracy. As you pointed out, it has sometimes and often been about box checking, looking at founders and understanding, do they have these certain backgrounds? And then they raise funding and maybe less so on, is this a fundamentally strong business idea? So I want to ask you a bit more about this point of view that underpins Hustle Fund as a firm. 
And you wrote on your blog in 2018, quote, early stage funding is incredibly skewed towards certain types of founders or ideas. So with that in mind, what does Hustle Fund look for? How do you all see the world? So for Hustle Fund, we're a pre-seed VC fund. And I know everybody has a different definition of pre-seed, but we go in quite early where there is some early version of a product and or maybe there is like a wait list, not necessarily customer revenue traction, but, you know, some signals, maybe you've done 50 customer development calls or something that there may be a business opportunity here. That's where we play. And what we are looking to back and make decisions on is essentially, is there a new opportunity? So we tend to avoid competitive spaces for this reason that customer acquisition costs tend to go up in competitive spaces. And it's not to say you can't build a business in a competitive space, but as a small funder, how costly the customer acquisition is matters to us. And then secondly, if there is greenfield to run in, do we have conviction that this is a real need on the business side and that generally speaking, this team is thinking about things in the right way? Primarily what I mean by that is, are they prioritizing customers above many other things? Are they very customer focused as opposed to, I don't know, running off and getting distracted around a lot of other things or building forever ad nauseum, which I've done before. And that generally doesn't end well. (laughs) Which is sort of another way of not prioritizing customers. Exactly. So you're looking for pre-seed companies where there's some signals that there is customer demand for what they're building, and you all are funding them. You have a number of different strategies for providing financing. So you have a venture fund, but you also have a revenue-based financing fund. Can you talk about the different approaches you have to providing capital? And then we'll get into what you all do beyond capital. But just on the capital piece, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think the capital piece is very interesting because for so long, if you look at startup ecosystems, you've largely just seen VCs. And all the VC models are fairly similar in that everybody is looking for at least 100x multiple, at least at the seed stage level. We are too as our VC firm. And so The question then is, well, is it worth backing other businesses that will never be 100x multiple winners? What about 10x or 5x or 2x, right? Is that worthwhile? And I think that for VCs, the industry would say no, which is not only astonishing, but honestly, I think bad for our general economy. So the question then is, are there other sources for startups that will do well and the founders will do well, but may not be 100x winners? And I think this is where alternative sources of funding that have kind of grown over the years come in. Some people may have heard of loans or revenue-based financing for startups, and we now have a revenue-based financing fund at Hustle Fund as well. It's completely separate. And the things that they look for in startups is also very different. Like on the VC fund, we're looking for 100x winners. On the revenue-based financing fund, we are essentially looking to understand, is this company going to grow enough in the next year or so to be able to pay back the loan? And they are solely looking at the numbers and very much prioritize profitable or near-profitable companies. It's a very different lens of evaluating. And I don't think one is better than the other. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to have those two different strategies under the same philosophy that you all think that solid businesses should be funded and venture capital may be the right fit for a fast, high-scaling business, and it may be the wrong fit for a business that's 
going for profitability in the early years. I'm curious to hear about the team you have in place to deliver all of the capabilities that you all have built. How did you build the investment team? What other roles are you resourcing? What does the Hustle Fund team look like? We're kind of a weird beast. So we very much think about building Hustle Fund from a tech company perspective, where we try to build in scaled processes, but also we want to incentivize people to be excited and work hard on their projects, et cetera. So people at Hustle Fund have a lot of autonomy and a lot of economics, which you don't typically see at a VC fund. Typically, VC funds are very small and the economics are concentrated amongst the general partners and that's sort of that. But what we are trying to do, especially as we introduce all these other business lines, whether it's the revenue-based financing fund, or more recently, we added a program called Angel Squad, which is spearheaded by Brian Nichols. That's another financing arm where we essentially have an angel club, if you will, a global angel club. And that's another source of financing for companies like angels. So we incentivize our team based on the work they're doing, not based on the VC fund. That doesn't make any sense, especially if you're not doing any investing. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, we're entrepreneurs ourselves. I think people find it silly to call a VC fund entrepreneurial, but that is the structure of it. You eat what you fish. Let's talk a little bit more about the Angel Squad and how that fits into the bigger picture. So let's say I'm a founder of a pre-seed company and I come to you and I want to be one of those 100x winners, but I'm very far from product market fit. But you all have conviction in my business. So how would I think about the angel squad versus the fund? Maybe the revenue-based financing is not for me, but how do I think of that as a founder coming to Hustle Fund? Going back to building out scaled processes, we like everybody to have a similar experience, regardless of whether you are my best friend or somebody halfway around the world whom we don't know or have any connection with, like two or three degrees away. To that end of making things fair, we ask everybody, even if they come in through a warm referral, you still have to go through our website and fill out the form. So that way we collect the same information on everyone in a structured format. And it is through that process then you can decide on the form, do you want to apply for the VC fund? the revenue-based financing fund or whatnot. And, you know, as we add more and more financing business lines, if you will, there'll just be more changes to the drop-down menu, if you will. So that means that you can apply for any and all, and the different teams will get back to you accordingly. If there is a fit, you'll be asked to interview. One of the things we're working on is how to make that very clear and not confusing because sometimes people are bombarded with different people like, wait, I just heard from somebody else on your team, but they're from a different fund. I love that because what you're really addressing is that the user interface of venture capital financing is very challenging and often non-existent. So the fact that you have an application process and you're working to really standardize what that founder experiences of Hustle Fund, I think is super unique and awesome. And I want to go back to what you talked about is the three pillars of Hustle Fund, capital, knowledge, and networks. So on the capital side, you're creating this transparent process and you have multiple avenues for funding a business. I want to go into the knowledge piece. 
You are prolific on Twitter, and that is certainly one of the channels where you share knowledge. And if you haven't looked at Elizabeth's Twitter profile, I highly recommend it. You really dive into these kind of tricky issues that everyone talks about, but no one really fully understands the details. I love your Twitter thread on capital call planning. Like, hey, where is the money that VCs supposedly have and how often do they get it and what is entailed in that process? You talk about lawyers, you talk about cold emails, product market fit. How do you see Twitter as a resource for you? And what are the benefits of being out there on Twitter for you, for the fund? And how do you decide what do you want to tackle there? Yeah, it's funny going back to how we very much see ourselves like a tech startup in ourselves. We took a look at our marketing analytics and we noticed that the applications that we receive, over half of them have a touch point from Twitter where people had read one of our threads or something like that. Over two years ago, I wasn't really active on Twitter. Once we saw that, we said, okay, we definitely need to be active on Twitter if that's where all of our applications are coming from. That was just astounding to me. Like they weren't coming from other sources. So Hmm. that's when we decided to really double down on Twitter and we just experimented. For me, the tweet thread format works really well. And I found that the topics that people tend to like are around things like fundraising emerging markets, and also transparency around getting a fund off the ground. Those are the three things that people like to hear, at least from me, about. When I try to tweet about other things, people generally are not that interested. Like when I tweet about customer acquisition, I actually love tweeting about that. And I think that's incredibly useful to a number of people's businesses, but people actually don't really resonate with that. Hmm. So we often have to make decisions in our topics around, do we want to feed people ice cream or do we want to feed them broccoli? That can be a philosophical (laughs) decision sometimes, but in general, I would say we're doling out more ice cream cones right now at the moment. But I think we do have plans to expand beyond Twitter. Twitter is one of the simplest things we can do. You just go on there and you start tweeting. But we've had a number of people ask us, hey, can you take your tweets and put them into a book so that's in a structured form and I can read it? Other people have asked us for more long form so we can elaborate on various points, whether it's blog posts or actually writing this in our email newsletter, which is fairly active as well. We also have a webinar series that we run once a month. So we've had people ask us, can we do that more often in other topics beyond pitching? So these are kind of the areas that we've gotten requests for. We're still kind of prioritizing what we want to expand in, but that's sort of the low-hanging fruit that we do expect to go in. And one reason you wanted to do this was to get more applications coming in to Hustle Fund. So did you achieve that? And what else have you achieved or learned from providing ice cream and vegetables to people on Twitter? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Actually, we have seen that change a lot over the years. Right now, we are processing over 700 applications a month. And so my personal KPI at Hustle Fund for the year is to get to 100,000 followers, which may seem like a silly KPI to many people. But because of how interconnected all of this is, that is the KPI. I am not anywhere near that. I think if I check today, I'm not even at 55,000. So I have a long ways to go and we're over halfway through the year, but I will try my best. So that's one piece of your knowledge pillar of Hustle Fund. Once you start working with founders and you've invested in them in some capacity, how else are you providing knowledge? I saw you recently started something you call the Redwood School, which is designed to help your portfolio companies fast track their customer acquisition process. Again, going back to the importance of customer acquisition. But what is the full set of things that founders will 
participate in once they're part of your portfolio? Yeah, we started an internal growth school called Redwood School. It's only for our founders. I would call it a very lightweight accelerator. We don't charge for it in any way. It's a benefit of being a portfolio company of ours. But it allows us to scale knowledge within our portfolio. Often founders have very similar questions. And we do bring in mentors who can help our founders with tactical growth whether it's lead gen through Facebook ads or outbound emails for sales and other things like that, depending on what kind of company you are and what your customer acquisition process is, we kind of put people in different content tracks and set them up with different mentors. And that allows our founders to get a little bit more lightweight guidance. It's not a full-on accelerator program, and we also don't have many of the other things that accelerator programs have, such as demo days. But I do think customer acquisition knowledge is really important. Certainly. And so do you hire a full team to run the Redwood School or do you all participate in kind of co-running it? (laughs) So we have a lead of Redwood School, Kara DeMars, who actually is on our Hustle Fund team and she runs that. She's the general manager of Redwood School. You know, we've honestly roped in a lot of friends who have been so gracious with their time, people who volunteer to work with our portfolio companies Some of these people are actually from Angel Squad, where they are operators and angels, and it's actually a great way for them to get deal flow as well and see our portfolio companies. And for other people, it's a way for them to give back to the community. I think that one of the things I've always loved about Silicon Valley is that there really is often a give back culture. And these days, I would say Silicon Valley is a state of mind rather than a place. So that's something that very much ties into this. And I am very grateful to all of the volunteers and mentors who have participated in Redwood School and helping our companies out. I want to shift a little bit and talk about one of the core constituents of Hustle Fund, which are your limited partners. And I'm curious how you've thought about your limited partners, your investor base over time. Has that changed at all from, you know, the earliest supporters of Hustle Fund when you launched at the end of 2017, early 2018 to now, what kinds of LPs do you have? And has there been any change in how you think about that LP base? I think in the beginning, honestly, we didn't have a lot of choices. Um, You know, as a first time fund, we did not have access to institutional investors, not grandma's pension fund or university endowments or anything like that. So we were largely raising from individuals. These are angel investors who might also invest in startups directly. And our check sizes that we were looking for in Fund One were really small. I mean, small for a fund, 25000 When you're talking about raising tens of millions of dollars, 25000 doesn't really move the needle, but that's what we did. We cobbled together a lot of small checks in the beginning. We did have a couple of much larger investors who were family offices and corporates in our fund one. So big shout out to the Line Corporation, if any of you use the messaging app, they are an LP. And then also the Shanda Group, who is, I guess you could say a family office, but they built actually a lot of tech businesses. So that was our fund one base, essentially, lots of individuals mostly. And then fund two actually was Fairly similar in the type of makeup, we did add one institutional foundry group into Fund 2, and I would say they've been 
pretty incredible working with Lyndall and Jacqueline over there. They are so in tune with startups. They do not seem like an institutional, though I do understand they're an institutional fund, right? And so I think as we go up on our fund three next year, we're trying to make a decision because we've really enjoyed working with individuals and family offices because they're very flexible in how they think about things, especially with so many new strategies and new things coming up in cryptocurrency and all this stuff. Like sometimes having flexible investors is actually better when the world is changing so much. Mm -hmm. So it's something that we have thought about, but haven't made a decision on yet. So speaking of new things, one thing that I have observed about you just watching, you know, your public persona is that I think you very clearly articulate things that you believe should change in the venture world and in the startup world, whether that's through Twitter or recently in the New York Times, you talked about the importance of growing the angel ecosystem and providing more access to more people to start investing in startups. So with this lens of things you might change, what is on your top three list of huge structural changes that you would implement? The interesting thing is when I first came into this industry, I felt like, oh gosh, you know, the reason for all these problems is just everyone is so close-minded. But when I really dug into it, that wasn't actually the case. The situation is that the SEC has a lot of regulations and they are meant to protect us, but sometimes it just means that actually... It removes flexibility in how things are done. And there are a few things that are very near and dear to my heart that I believe the SEC should change. One of those is the restriction on the number of investors in funds. That restriction is 99 investors. And now they've actually more recently moved it up to you can have less than 250 investors in a fund that's under 10 million, which I think is a great change. But it means that fundamentally it is hard to spin up funds if you have a restriction on the number of investors because you cannot cobble together 5,000 small checks. Mm -hmm. So it means you can only raise from the richest people in the world. And that is, I think, a problem when it comes to diversity of things that get funded and diversity of ideas, because then that power is concentrated just in a handful of people ultimately, because those are the people who are the LPs. So that is one big change that I think is on its way, not quite there. The second is around retail investing and accredited investor laws. So I think the accredited investor laws are nice to have, but the way that they are implemented, I don't think is a great way to assess whether somebody should be an investor. It's largely based on net wealth. And then these days, the SEC has loosened up where you can take a test and become accredited that way. I think that should be changed even further and moved certainly away from level of wealth to enable more people to be able to invest. In part, it's because with Sarbanes-Oxley coming in from the last recession, what you see is that startups wait longer to go public. I think when Amazon went public, couple of decades ago, they could go public in the hundreds of millions market cap. These days, a company has to be certainly above a billion dollars, and in many cases, over $10 billion to think it's worthwhile to jump through all the regulatory hoops to go public. This means that retail investors cannot take advantage of that upside growth at all, really, because that growth is gone. That growth is only in the private markets. But retail investors today can't really access that. So I think more has to be done around regulations and crowdfunding and what people can and can't do. And that's also moving in the right direction, but also crowdfunding even in funds. Like today, you as a retail investor cannot invest in a crowdfunded fund. There are a couple of funds that have gone on crowdfunding platforms, but not for their fund. It's for their management company, which is different. So those are probably the two I would pick out. 
Yeah, at Carta, we care a ton about access and have played a role in amending the accredited investor rule. I think it's super important. There's also, I think, smaller changes that are currently possible in our current regulatory environment that you all are pushing through. So, for example, the Angel Squad geared toward accredited investors, but still you're doing a lot of work to train new investors on what to look for in startups. So with the dual hat of how do we protect people and help them make sure they're making the right decisions and how do we give them access to opportunity? What do you think the most important things are for a new angel investor to know? I made a lot of mistakes as an early angel investor, but what is most important is going in with eyes wide open that yes, you will make a lot of mistakes. And so as such, what does a mistake look like? And I think for so long, many people thought about angel investing as, oh, I'm putting in $25,000 at a minimum on each company. And that becomes a very expensive mistake if you make several of those. At Angel Squad, we are providing education around at least what we look for at Hustle Fund. We provide deal flow to try to handhold our thought process with people. They may not agree, and that's fine, but we just want people to start thinking in a structured way about how to invest. And then lastly, and I think probably most importantly, if you're going to be making mistakes and go in with that thought process, then you should be risking very little money. So our minimum check size that we require to invest in companies through Angel Squad is $1,000. So... Instead of losing $25,000, you're losing $1,000. You can potentially afford to make a few mistakes and you'll still be fine if you're a professional. And that's what we're gunning for because I think that just makes angel investing a lot more accessible for many professionals out there. And one piece of this is you enable the angels to have access to deal flow. What happens on the company side of that equation? What work needs to be done to ensure that angels have allocation in that round. Is that a challenge? Founders, I think, are, for the most part, very intentional about who they have on the cap table. How does that look from the founder's perspective? So this is really interesting because I think we're also going through a shift. Not only is it good for new angel investors to learn about angel investing and make it accessible to more people to become angel investors, but I think it is also better for the companies. Because when you think about it, capital is actually a commodity. Like my money is as good as anybody else's money. But what founders really want is not just capital. They want other things. It could be network. It could be help with customer acquisition. It could be help with design, whatever it is. So I think the more people in general you bring into this, the more choice founders have in being able to not only access capital, but other people who would be good on their cap table to help them with other things, whether it's open doors for the company or whatnot. And so founders then can assemble a group of angels who could actually be very strategic, much more than one VC fund. And that's actually really exciting. And I'm seeing more and more rounds assembled this way where the founders are just pulling together a few million dollars from a bunch of angels who are writing even $5,000 checks each. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing founders value the diversity of opinions they have around the table as a result of broadening their allocation pool. Definitely. Interesting. I want to spend the last couple of minutes stepping back and asking you to look back at your career. Before this podcast, I invited the CARTA team to share 
any questions they had for you. We had a lot of questions that the team was curious to know. One question comes from our product team. Alice asked, what advice would you give your younger self prior to getting into venture? And what have been the biggest barriers you've faced since getting started? I wish I had started angel investing earlier. I only started angel investing about six or seven years ago now, and I'm almost 40. I wish I had started angel investing in my mid to late 20s. Maybe angel investing is not the first thing you do when you think about financial planning. But at some point, you know, let's say that you're a professional out there who is making some money and you're saving some money and you're investing in whatever your 401k plan, et cetera. At some point when you feel comfortable enough to take some risk, maybe what you do is you start allocating, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars a year. Maybe you negotiate that raise for a couple thousand dollars and you just think of it as, okay, I'm using that to angel invest with. And just learn by writing $1,000 checks. I wouldn't do it alone in the beginning. I would try to find some friends who have been angel investing for a while or you know, any of these programs, certainly a plug for Angel Squad or any of these, and invest alongside people and just really learn and just assume that money's going to be flushed down the toilet, but really learn and do that every year for the next several years. Because I think that that high-risk, high-growth asset class is something that I've seen make so many people rich, but you have to practice and you have to practice on small dollars and you have to do that like anything else over time. And I wish I had just started earlier. Angel investing tuition. Yeah. Spend a few thousand dollars to learn angel investing. Exactly. For those who are not accredited or don't feel that they're financially in a place where they could spend a few thousand dollars a year, I think there's some other options. I'd love to hear your perspective. One option is you advise a company on a voluntary basis, and in exchange, you get some equity for doing that. Yes. That's certainly one option. I think it's a great option. I've done that in the past. Are there other avenues to getting your angel investing education? I think that's another great avenue. If you have the time and you don't quite have the money yet, Advising, I would say, is fairly synonymous with angel investing. Instead of money, you're spending some time advising the company and you get equity. I would do that with a lot of companies, like with angel investing, to start to assemble a portfolio. Because ultimately, let's say down the road, you do want to go full hog with angel investing or get into VC, then you need to have worked with a lot of companies in some form or another, whether it's through investing your time or your money. To be able to compare all these companies and understand what are the pitfalls, where do people go wrong, how do people think about things, what worked, what didn't work, et cetera. And that just comes from seeing a lot and working with a lot of companies. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. I think that wraps our conversation. I really appreciated having you on the show. And if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to help you get to 100,000 Twitter followers. What is your Twitter handle? Yeah, my Twitter handle is at dunkhippo33. I realize it's a little wonky, but dunk like slam dunk in basketball, <laughs> hippo as in the animal, and 3-3. Three, three. Is there any special significance to your Twitter handle? How did you <laughs> come across it? Or was it just a creative idea you had? Oh, there's nothing special about it. <laughs> dunk hippo 33. Thank you, Elizabeth. Certainly follow Elizabeth on Twitter. She has tons of great information and guidance. So thanks for being on the first close. Thanks for having me, Jessica. Elizabeth and the team have built Hustle Fund on three pillars, 
access to capital, knowledge, and networks. And the way the firm delivers on these value propositions looks a lot like how a tech company operates. As Elizabeth shared in our conversation, Hustle Fund creates scaled processes and uniform experiences for founders. The result of their processes and their deep thinking about user experience is that they're creating accessibility in an industry where accessibility is often scarce. As Elizabeth said, we like everybody to have a similar experience, regardless of whether they are a friend of the firm or somebody halfway around the world. We wanna make things fair. Accessibility, especially at the pre-seed stage, is a huge competitive advantage. Hustle Fund is investing in the riskiest part of the entire venture asset class. Many companies form, but few get funded and even fewer succeed. The vast majority of venture capital goes to companies that have traction. So pre-seed companies that are raising a million dollars or less represent only about 15% of all venture capital deals funded in any given year, according to data from PitchBook. So Hustle Fund has designed the firm to ensure they see as much of the pre-seed ecosystem as they can. And they have worked to remove almost all barriers to entry so that they have the best possible chance of finding and funding the companies that will be successful. As Elizabeth tells her founders, the most important elements of any business are customer acquisition and unit economics. And uniquely, Hustle Fund is a venture firm that has figured out how to deliver on both. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinion or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. The First Close is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Jessica Strauss. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director, with sound production by Nick Canapa and script production by Mary Kelleher. This podcast is presented by eShares, Inc., doing business as Carta, Inc., Carta, and Carta Ventures.